welcome back to the Temple University Law Library podcast, where we delve into resources that Temple's Law Library has to offer, as well as asking questions about law so you don't have to. I'm your host, Olivia Benner. We have reached the end of Carly's interviews. Thank you again to Carly Goldberg for all the hard work you put into this podcast. In today's episode, Carly sat down with Professor Susan DeJarnat to discuss how local Philadelphia law impacts students' primary education and the business of charter schools versus public schools. Professor DeJarnat is a professor of law teaching legal research and writing. She has frequently taught in and directed the Temple Rome Summer Program and has been a visiting professor at the University of Verona. Some of her scholarly research includes rhetoric in debates about bankruptcy and education reform and the impact of privatization on public education. In 2008, she was awarded the University Lindback Award for Distinguished Teaching. Take it away, Carly. I think the first question I'll ask you is, um, I know that you're interested and you've done a lot of uh, research in the education area. Can you talk a little bit about what specifically you focus on? My major interest is how privatization and school choice have negatively impacted public education, particularly in Philadelphia. I'm pretty local. I really focus on Philadelphia and to some extent, Pennsylvania. Can you talk about this negative impact, what you think this negative impact specifically is? Well, I think the fundamental problem is that People who want to completely eliminate public education, and I would put Betsy DeVos, for example, as the lead candidate for that, don't value its role as an engine of democracy. They see it purely as a consumer item, like buying food. In fact, she's made that analogy a number of times. If you don't like McDonald's, you can go to Burger King. But I think the role of public education in Uh, creating an engaged citizenry is way beyond that. We all have an interest in the education of our children, of the whole community, not just my individual kids, but your kids, Charlie's kids, everybody, whether I have kids or not, I should care about their education. Why is that necessarily negative? The problem is that at least in Pennsylvania, and I think you see this replicated a lot in the country, when the state government enacted the charter school legislation, it honestly really didn't think about the costs. It was almost as if, and I've looked at the what we call legislative history, like the records about what the legislators said, they really paid no attention to how this was going to affect school districts. And it does affect them because a charter school gets the tuition, gets the per pupil funding of the district it's in, and that comes out of the school district's budget. So for example, Philadelphia, which has over 80 bricks and mortar charter schools, they all receive tuition payments from the school district of Philadelphia that are the amount that the school district pays per pupil. The argument often from people who think this is great say, well, the school district can then slim down. It can reduce the number of teachers. It can close schools. That is true to an extent. Whether that's good or not is a whole bigger question. But the reality is that charters draw kids from a number of schools. So for example, if a new charter opens in 
North Philadelphia, down the street from Temple. The kids who go there aren't going to all come from one school. There might be you know, 15 or 20 public elementary schools who lose students. That means it's very difficult for the district to reduce staff or close buildings because you know, if they only lost two fifth graders, they're not going to fire a fifth grade teacher and close that grade down. They're still going to have to heat the buildings. They're still going to have to remove the snow, all of those things. So that leads to something called stranded costs. Researchers, advocates argue about this forever, but essentially the district can't recoup about four, four to $5,000 per charter student ever. That's like an ongoing dream. It's even worse when you talk about cyber charter schools, which draw students from all over the state. And the problem there, again, is the tuition is pegged to the per-pupil funding of the district the student comes from. But that gives the cyber charters an incentive to draw students from wealthy districts. So for example, if a a cyber charter school can draw a student from Lower Marion, where the per-pupil funding is approaching $30,000, it provides the exact same education to that student as it does to a student from a district called Storox, S-T-O hyphen R-O-X, which is near Pittsburgh, which is one of the most poorly funded districts in the whole state. It has the same costs. It provides the exact same education, but it gets to pocket the difference in money. And that is something I think the state government desperately needs to fix so that, you know, clearly COVID has taught us that cyber options are necessary. I think the money should be going to school districts to build out their ability to provide virtual learning to their to all students but the cyber charters are advertising really heavily drawing a lot of students and raking in a lot of money that could be better used elsewhere so if i am a law student who's listening to this and this is really something that i'm also passionate about and interested in Mm -hmm. what can i do to either help you move forward or just be more involved in this issue Well, interestingly, this is really an issue that spans both law, scholarship, and activism. For me, I started as a parent activist. That's how I really got involved in this. Like, kids were in public schools in Philly, and I was upset about things that were happening. Law students at Temple work on this in a variety of ways. Some do work with organizations or public entities, like do an internship with a city council representative or work at the school district. These days you could probably do some kind of practicums, but it's essentially an externship, an outside clinical placement. People could probably do that with the State Department of Education if they wanted to. I have supervised a number of students who've written scholarly papers or law review comments that deal with some aspect of this. For example, cyber charters spending money on advertising, which is tax money. One cyber charter was spending $1,000 per student on advertising per student. That's a lot of money. So people write about things like that. It's not part of the law school curriculum per se, but a number of students are involved in other organizations that might have an interest in the issue. And so you talked about this started as personal interest and then it evolved into a career interest. Can you talk a little bit more about that? 
Yeah, I started teaching at Temple in 1996. I had two kids 10 years apart. And so five years later, when the school district of Philadelphia was taken over by the state, my daughter was in 11th grade and my son was just starting kindergarten. I was very much opposed to that state takeover. I thought it was going to be kind of a disaster for Philadelphia. I think that proved to be true. But essentially, I was... Before I got to the scholarship part, I was madly, you know, organizing demonstrations, writing letters, working with other people. For example, Helen Gim, who's a city council person now, was one of the leaders of the parent movement to try to oppose this. And after spending all of this energy, we, we were unsuccessful, I have to say. The takeover did happen but we did succeed in getting the right to have the mayor appoint two of the five people who were on the governing board, which was better than the one they originally promised. So I was spending an enormous amount of energy on this. And then it occurred to me, like, I'm a law professor. I can research and write about this. So I started to. And that first article was about the rhetoric used in the takeover, the way I used to joke the Philadelphia Public Schools official name, as far as the newspapers are concerned, had become the failing Philadelphia Public mm -hmm. Schools, which was certainly not my experience as a parent of two kids who went to my neighborhood elementary school and thrived there. And so that was one thing. Accountability was another word I really questioned because I didn't think it was being used properly. So I wrote about that. And then I became much more concerned about the financial impact of charter growth. I don't have the expertise and don't pretend to weigh in on whether any one charter is a good school or a bad school academically. I'm sure a number of them are fine. The cyber charters generally are pretty terrible, but they're in a class by themselves. But, you know, of the 80 plus charter schools in Philadelphia, some of them I'm sure are excellent. Some of them are probably mediocre. Some are quite bad. That would be true of the traditional public schools as well. But my concern was much more that there was so little oversight and regulation of the way they were funded. And there were a lot of horror stories at the time of various criminal charges. There were 19 investigations by the U.S. Attorney's Office at one point of various Philadelphia charter school operators. So I really wanted to dig into that issue and, and look at it. I wrote about that. I wrote about the cyber charter schools from the same perspective. And then I've written a number of other pieces that have raised questions about different aspects of this. Is there any other sort of information or specifics that you feel like are really important and you'd like to include? As I said in our chat before, I haven't had a chance to really dig into how COVID has impacted all of this, but I think the thing that I'm most concerned about is the bricks and mortar charters and the traditional public schools are both struggling with how do you continue to educate your kids in this pandemic environment? And that's a really huge struggle that affects all of them. The cyber charters, of course, since they were doing distance learning from the beginning, are much less impacted. And in fact, many of them have taken advantage of this and are really advertising and expanding. And that comes at a very significant cost to the state 
and the school districts. I hope that the reforms that Governor Wolf has proposed, for example, one of his reforms is to redo the tuition structure for cyber charters. So they get a a flat fee. They don't get whatever the tuition happens to be for the lower Marion kid. They're just all going to get the same amount of money for every kid across the state. I think that would be a huge step forward. They also, at the moment, special ed funding is a whole other issue because the traditional public schools special ed funding is based on the needs of the students. There's three tiers, people with relatively low cost needs, maybe a small hearing deficit or something that takes, you know, speech therapy once a week versus medium level things versus really expensive things. A kid with severe autism and a physical limitation, that child, it may cost thousands of dollars to give that child a decent quality education. For the charters, both cyber and bricks and mortar, it's all or nothing. You either get the special ed funding or you don't, whether it's the inexpensive kid or the expensive kid, and they're not required to spend their special ed funding on the kid. So there's this terrible perverse incentive to try to maximize the number of inexpensive special ed kids you have and minimize the number of expensive ones. That needs to be fixed both the charter school should be subject to that same three-tier category. And there should be a requirement that that extra funding goes to the purpose it's intended for. It goes to pay for the needs of the children, not for extra whatever that the charter may feel it needs. And that's that's becoming more of a crisis in this moment where the cybers are growing by leaps and bounds because parents are desperate. And I understand that, but that doesn't mean we should keep this crazy funding structure that we have. What is so valuable about public education that charter schools potentially miss out on? What I think is fundamental about the role of public education is this idea that I fully admit we've never brought to life fully, but the idea that all children deserve a quality opportunity to be educated and reach their potential. That matters regardless of that kid's parents or where they live or anything, really. And there's many things that feed into that. You know, it's crazy that our system of funding is based on property taxes, which means wealthy areas easily can afford fancier schools than poor areas. Why then do I pick on charter schools? I don't just pick on charter schools, but all of the school choice rhetoric, whether it be promoting the idea of school choice through charters, or in my opinion, worse yet, through vouchers, is based on this very narrow view that all that matters is that I get to choose the school I like for my kid. It becomes a competition. That view does not sufficiently value the community idea of educating all of our kids. Now, charter proponents would call me out on that and say, we're coming into places that have really weak 
public schools and we're providing a quality alternative. I understand that argument. I want that energy to be devoted to improving the schools that are available to everyone. Because even the choice through charters is dependent to some extent on parents who have the social capital. That is, they have the education background, the networks, the knowledge that they know how to work the system to find a school that they prefer. Parents do have the right to do what they think is best for their kid. But the more we splinter out what the education system provides to just catering to parent choices, the less we care about all of the kids. Because I think about the kids whose parents aren't able to do that. And vouchers, that hasn't been a main focus of my work, but vouchers make that even worse because then it really does totally commodify education and gets it down to who who's better at picking McDonald's over Whole Foods, which is really not good for our country. What's the distinction between a, a charter and a voucher? Ah, that's very important. If I want to run a charter school in Philadelphia under Pennsylvania's charter law, I have to apply to the district I have to give them a whole lot of information about what the school is going to be, how many kids, what's its mission, what's the admission policies, all kinds of things. The district then decides whether or not to authorize that charter. If it does, I get that tuition money from the district for every kid I enroll. And then I choose the teachers, I choose the curriculum, I choose how much to pay myself as the CEO, as they like to call their principals. I make all those choices. My initial problem, this is more than you need to know, but you know, way back when was neither the school district or the state of Pennsylvania was really paying any attention to how I spent that money. And that led to some really horrible outcomes. The district has gotten much, much, much better about doing oversight of charter schools. And we are seeing fewer. In fact, I don't think there's been a criminal indictment in Philadelphia for a number of years now. What's a voucher? A voucher is here's a check, go find a school. Pennsylvania does not have vouchers exactly right now. What it has is, and I forget the acronym, there's a program where you can, and a corporation can donate money that is used for tuition payments at private schools, not charters, not charters aren't private schools, and you get a tax write-off. So if, for example, if you go to the website for say the Baldwin School or Germantown Friends, you're likely to see a provision that says, oh, and you can apply for these payments to defray your tuition costs. So question whether it's good in a democracy for all of us to be paying for children to go to at least fancy private schools. Sometimes charters are just take the money and go wherever. No one, to my knowledge, in the United States has proposed a voucher that would actually pay the full freight for a kid to go to one of these elite private schools. So they're often held up as, oh, wouldn't it be great if everybody could go to Germantown Friends or everyone could go to Episcopal, but those schools cost an enormous amount of money. I don't know what their tuition rates are these days, but I think it's like $25,000, $30,000. A voucher for $6,000 is not going to get you into those schools, even if they wanted to let you in 
and you have to apply and you don't always get in. It's more likely to foster greater enrollment in Catholic schools, which is something I don't have. I have no objection to greater enrollment in Catholic schools. I think they've played an important role, but I don't think taxpayers should be funding religious education because I think that's a First Amendment problem. Or it pays for enrollment in sort of other marginalized, specialized, low-cost private schools, which objectively are unlikely to provide the kind of improved education people claim they mean. Instead, it really caters to what do I want my kid to be doing for six hours a day and I get to decide everything as opposed to a community decision. I know that's kind of amorphous, but that I think that's converting education to food stamps, basically. And you know, with food stamps, people have the right to buy food, but it doesn't mean that you have better stores in your neighborhood. Thank you so much, Carly and Professor DeJarnat. I never knew what the inner workings of charter schools looked like and the huge impact it has on the budgets of public schools. For more resources, check out the Law Library's webpage, law.temple.edu, or reach out by email at tulawlib at temple.edu. Thank you for tuning into this episode of the Temple University Law Library podcast. Have a great winter break and happy holidays. We hope you join us again in 2022.